This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Chase Fisher explains how he built his $2 million business by working with influencers he met through in-person Insta meets. On today's episode, you'll learn from a husband and wife entrepreneur team that started promoting their business through local print media. In this episode, you'll learn how to get factories to invest in you when you're just a small-time client, how to make sure that you have a strong foundation with your business partner, and how to cater your pitch to each specific media outlet. Today, I'm joined by Dave and Praj from KaralaCashmere.com. That's C-O-R-A-L-A-C-A-S-H-M-E-R-E.com. Kerala Cashmere is a luxury Canadian boutique offering premium quality scarves, shawls, and hats handwoven from the world's finest cashmere started in 2013 and based of Ottawa, Ontario. Welcome, Dave and Praj. Oh, thank you very much. Hi. How you doing? Good, good. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. So, yeah, tell us a bit more about your your store and uh, you know what are some of the more more popular products that you sell from the store. Yeah, so ours is a you know yeah, e-commerce online um, cashmere. So we basically sell cashmere scarf, cashmere shawls, and cashmere hats. Um, those are our main products, and we um, want to focus mostly on the cashmere currently. So yeah, we sell cashmere scarf. Um, hats and shorts at the moment. Very cool. So how did you guys get into this uh, line of business? Did you have experience in in fashion or I guess even more specifically in cashmere before? No, not actually. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> so how we start is actually kind of interesting. Um, so Dave and I, we, we met when we were students in, in Netherlands. Um, I am originally from Nepal and Dave is from Canada. So basically we both were, you know, wanted to see more of the world. So we ventured out from each of our countries and somehow landed up in Netherlands. Um, so we, we studied together and uh, while, while studying, we both of us, we fell in love, uh, got engaged in Netherlands. And I took Dave back to my home country in Nepal where we got married um, and right off after our marriage, then we went to a honeymoon in a mountain side of Nepal. And while uh, in our honeymoon, then we discovered the um, cashmere industry. So cashmere basically comes from the mountain goats that roam around above 15,000 feet in the Himalayan areas of Nepal. So during our honeymoon, we discovered this factory, um, this fabric, and we were quite intrigued. I was like, wow, you know, we touched it. It was like really soft and really nice and really high quality. But um, we didn't think much during that time because, you know, we were having fun. We just got married and we were enjoying. But after, sorry, after our honeymoon, then Dave um, had to leave the country um, to sort of start the immigration process for me, um, and I had to be in Nepal. So during that time, uh, <laughs> we were apart for nine months. Um, but luckily, what happened was that Canada and Nepal is really in twelve hours uh, sort of ahead of each other. So we used to talk on Skype every day, 
uh, you know, day and night. And while talking on Skype, then we would, you know, go back to our honeymoon phase. And we were like, oh, remember that uh, cashmere product that we touched mm-hmm. that comes from the Himalayan region? And so we thought, oh, hey, you know, maybe there is a business here. We, we don't know, right? So, and I also wanted to bring something to Canada that is attached to my home country of Nepal. Um, we really like the product. So that's how we sort of thinking our thought process was, oh, maybe there is something we don't know. So that's that's actually how we, we the business idea came. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. A lot of entrepreneurs, they will you know always have all these ideas. And typically the one they end up pursuing is the one that almost nags them the longest, right? The one that doesn't seem to go away no matter where you spend your time is always something in the back of your mind. So are you... Are the customers that you're selling to are they mostly based in the the U.S. and Canada, or are you selling like who's who, which which part of the world is buying most of the products? Well, Canada is a really cold country, and so the <laughs> products certainly do well here. Um, you know, we're based in in Ottawa and sort of Shopify's headquarters here, and um, so we get the the majority of our sales from the Canadian market: uh, Ottawa, Toronto, Vancouver, sort of major urban centers. And then as things have grown, we've seen orders come in from uh, the U.S. and then you know, other parts of the world as well, UK, Australia, Germany. And um, we're just continually surprised to help people find us in other places. Mm-hmm. So you, um, you guys went on this uh, this honeymoon, you were in Nepal, you noticed that there are these amazing fabrics, these amazing products, uh, there's an industry around it. Like you mentioned, there are factories that you discovered. This is a similar, this is a, a path that I think a lot of other entrepreneurs go down where they are in a different country, they notice a product that they don't see very often in their home country and want to bring that back home and realize that maybe there's a business around it. Tell us about the steps that you took to 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 realize that to make this dream a reality where you found this product in a different part of the, the world than where you're you know currently based out of how do you begin the process of creating a business uh with a product that's not in your part of the world and bringing it to prominence in your part of the world right um well it was not an easy process but it was kind of interesting so when we were apart i was in nepal and dave was in canada so it sort of gave us gave me a bit of a heads up where I could go to the you know different factories and see the product, talk to the people face to face. And um, I, I think in Nepal particularly, it's important when you talk to a person face to face and build that rapport with the uh, with the factory there. Um, and so that was really helpful when I could go touch the product, talk about the quality. Um, and we really wanted to focus on the quality of the product. So I would actually ask for the you know, lab reports as well, whether this quality is really high quality and make sure that the people who are working there actually are working in a, you know, good conditions. So that, that was really advantageous that I was in the country for nine months where I could meet with the supplier every day you know, talk to them what we are looking for, what they have, what they can produce. So I think that was that was really important. And that did give us a good, um, uh, good supply in the end. Mm-hmm. So how did this business relationship with these factories start off? Like how many orders did you do you remember how many orders you had to place early on? How much risk was involved on your end to start a business like this? Yeah, it's, it starts very slowly and sometimes very <laughs> organically. And so you know, where we began was actually just identifying who were the kind of premier cashmere, um, you know, producers in, in the country and then meeting with them one on one. So it meant going into the factory, as Praj said, touching the different fabrics and seeing the range of color options and weaves 
And, um, you know, that can be a, a time consuming and slow process at that start. And then once you get, once you get past that, then, um, you know, you have a better understanding of both the industry and, and the people that you want to work with. And so we kind of narrowed things down to uh, two or three suppliers and, and eventually one that we wanted to connect with. And then it was part of building that relationship, uh, deciding on the, the products that we wanted to order. And we started out very small, actually. We placed an order for about 100, um, 100 cashmere shawls. Uh, we didn't get into the hats and the, the scarves yet. So we selected the shawls. We picked a wide range of colors that we thought might resonate with customers back here in, in North America, and we went from there. Right. So it sounds like an approach that was organic and, and at a comfortable pace, which means that uh, probably not a ton of risk on your end. You weren't ordering like you know thousands or tens of thousands during your first run. Uh, but were these factories hesitant to work with you if you were starting off with a, a smaller batch? Again, which I think is a, a much safer and a much, I think, wiser approach for starting a business, especially when you cannot or do not want to take on too much risk uh, off the bat, but were these factories um, ever resistant to working with you because of the the smaller scale that you're coming to them with? Right, and I think that's a part of sort of building a rapport with the factory as well. So when I would go and visit different factories, I would really look into who I really, um, you know, get along with because it's a long process right it's just not one order we knew that if we work with them you know it's going to be a long process and I wanted to work with somebody who I really would get along with so in the beginning I think that building rapport was a really um, important part not only for me but also with the factory owner as well um, and I, I think maybe um, luckily they were they were okay with placing 100 orders and they sort of knew our long-term vision as well that we wanted to, you know, take it further. It's just not one-time order or two-time order. We are looking for a long-term relation with them. So I think that that actually really helped, even though it was just 100 orders with them. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, it, you know, in, in some ways it, it wasn't about the um, – the number of the order is the relationship that we were building. And there were certainly factories there that do cater to, to much larger businesses and much larger markets. And we were lucky to find one that was willing to, right. to do it on a small scale, knowing that, um, you know, as we as we went along, that we would be refining and, and iterating on on the product and, and hopefully would lead to larger sales in the future. Yeah, I think when we look at factories, when we think about manufacturers, sometimes we just look at the numbers, who can get, who can get a, us the cheapest, the lowest minimum, minimum order quantity. Uh, but you're saying the approach that worked the best for you guys to find the best partner was to build a relationship with them first, build some rapport. Can you say more about this? Like, What do you find that factories, I guess, value in a partner if we're not, look, if we're not just talking about the numbers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the important um, factor for me was the quality. Quality, right, the quality of their product. Because I've heard from you know a few other friends who are starting a business that sometimes they place an order, but when actually it's imported into uh, you know let's say Canada or anywhere else, the product is not the same quality sometimes. So I think for me it was really important to see that actually those are the people that I can trust. And, and vice versa for them to to trust us as well. So I think quality was really important. And, and I think it's been really good with them. We have imported many times and not even one one product defect so far. So, yeah. And what about from the factory side? Like, What are they looking for in a partner like, uh, like you guys, especially like you're saying, because you're starting off smaller? What are some ways to, I guess, make you seem like a more attractive partner to them? Yeah, in some ways we didn't have to do a lot of attraction, I think, um, 
you know, just the fact that we were serious with the business, we were able to show that we'd kind of registered the business name back in Canada, that we had taken steps to start to build the website and, and a bit of the brand. And so if you can come into the conversation with an idea and an understanding of the kind of business that you want to build and the way in which that factory can help you grow over time, mm-hmm. uh, that really helps. And then I think having some um, some early stage ideas around how do you want to market the product and who are you trying to target. Um, you know, the other thing with with Kashmir is that it's not like producing, um, you know, something that, that can be mass produced. It's very specialized. Mm. And so it does take time to weave each Kashmir shawl together and each Kashmir accessory. And so I think because of the reason, because of the time involved and the commitment and quality that, um, sometimes these factory owners are, are more inclined to work with smaller batches as well. Mm. Okay, so you got your first 100 or so orders in that, in that initial production run. What was next? Like, Did you have a ship to Canada? Did you already have sales? Like, What was the very next step after getting that uh, initial production run? Right. Um, it, yeah, it was an interesting because we both are not, uh, you know, this is our first uh, entrepreneurial gig. So we both are not from the entrepreneurial background. In fact, we both are from a nonprofit background. <laughs> so running a business was something that was very new to us. So once we ordered the pro- pro- products, then the next thing for us is to know how do we import it? Like we absolutely did not have any idea. So it was going through our, you know, <laughs> border control security booklet, which was like uh, 200 pages, reading those, what are the, you know, labeling requirements in Canada, US and other countries. So it was researching and learning a lot of things about how do we import, right? We have a product now, how do we get this into Canada and US? So it was, yeah, it was a lot of learning into, you know, how do we do our taxes? How do we do it? A lot of back end of mm. the businesses that we had to learn by ourselves, by reading and talking to the people and, you know, asking other friends and family, who, you know, who run a business uh, here in Canada. So a lot of months and months and months of research went into that. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of times when you create a product, you think it's just the product that you need to create, but there's a whole infrastructure that goes around it. And so for us, you know, we had to think about the labels that went on it. We had to think about the mm. CA number to be able to sell our products, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wholesale, retail, if we decided to do that. Right. Uh, we had to understand the the customs and, and importing duty process so that you know, our, our goods didn't get stuck at the border and, and we couldn't access them. And so, you know, for entrepreneurs that are just getting started, certainly the product is core. You need to understand what, you know, the, the, the best parts of that and build the best product. But there's this whole... Uh, uh, other side of the business that you need to think about as well. Were there any close calls where you might not have been able to get the product in at uh, past uh, past the import process? Yeah, I think one was you know we did a lot of research on the um, import requirement, but there was one paperwork that was missing from the supplier side. And I didn't know I somehow may have skipped while I read the booklet. So that got stuck in the border. <laughs> and we, we were freaking out, like, what do we do? How do we get that product? So in the end, the supplier had to supply 
uh, sort of a one-page description of the product and some of the details that the border requirement required. And they um, you know, email uh, that, that page to me, and then I had to send it to the um, border security. And in the end, after a week or two, then the product was released to us. So that was sort of a lesson learned as well. It was not a big hassle, but even those two weeks of not knowing the uncertainty if we're doing things correctly, but in the end, it worked out. But I would, I would, I would suggest to actually do a, a bit more diligent <laughs> research if somebody's thinking of, you know, importing. It's a lot more goes into, you know, what are the requirements for sure. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, what would you do differently to make it more seamless? Like, could you have relied on the the suppliers? Like, do these suppliers, these manufacturers, or these factories that you're working with, do they have experience in uh, working with others that are trying to import into you know your your the country that you're importing into Canada at the time? Uh, did, could you rely on them to give guidance? Like, what are some of the ways to make sure that you don't get tripped up? You know, last minute because the last thing you want to do is place a big order and maybe even have sales. You know, people waiting for the products and all of a sudden you just have you know inventory sitting at the border you can't get a hold of yeah the best thing you can do is give yourself as much time as possible for the process knowing that there might be some some bumps along the way and so for us we knew that around the kind of christmas holiday time was always where we needed the most product and so we would start the process you know as early as february march uh, april to get the you know paperwork underway I mean, this is where trust comes in, I think, because it's it's not only paperwork from your side, but it's paperwork from the supplier side as well. Mm. And, um, you know, there is there is a lot of, uh, you know, documents that you have to have to produce properly. The other thing is that um, the factory that we were working with had a lot of experience uh, importing and, or sort of ex- exporting to other countries. Uh, but not to Canada. And so we had to figure out the right customs forms and the right paperwork in order to do that properly. Mm. So do do you have to repeat this uh, importing documents and process each time or does it become easier uh, subsequent times where you're bringing in the same product? Yeah, well, that's the nice thing is that you you learn the first time around and then each time you do it, it becomes easier and easier. So we've gone through the process now of importing about three or four different uh, different batches over the course of the, the history of the um, of the company. And so you do duplicate in some ways. Certainly that quality assurance needs to be there at each stage. Mm. Um, but once you've gone through once, it does become a lot easier. Yeah. Mm. And we do um, you know, give a call to our supplier as frequently as possible um, so that they are aware of the product as well, because they are not only dealing with us, they are dealing with other customers as well. So that's, again, building the rapport. Mm. I, I think mm-hmm. it's really essential to build a rapport and not only see them as somebody who is just you know, shipping the products. Right. I see that makes sense that you're not just giving them money and then they give you products, but then there's value and knowledge that you can exchange as well. And that that helps build that that relationship that you're talking about. So you mentioned before that you both have uh, nonprofit backgrounds. Now, when you started uh, Corella Cashmere, was this the full time job or something you guys were doing on the side? Like what was what was the situation? No, we did. We, did, we each had full time jobs. Um, Pertina worked for the government. I worked in the nonprofit sector. Um, but we both have a background in international development. That's actually where we, that was actually what we were studying when we met. Um, and so we knew that we wanted to continue those careers, but it was important for us to also think about other sources of income and just kind of a creative project on the side for us. And that's, that's really how it started. 
Gotcha. So how did you balance the the start of a, a business uh, while having a full-time job? Because again, a scenario that's very common to a lot of listeners out there, a lot of entrepreneurs when they're first starting out is to start something on the side. What was the, the process like for you getting a business like this started while working, while both of you are working full-time jobs? Yeah, I think I think balance is a really kind word. I don't think when we started there was a lot of balance. Um, you know, it was certainly a lot of late night hours and and after hours. Um, we we would go to work sort of nine to five, and then we would come home in the evenings and and start to tinker away on the business and building the website and um, you know getting the packaging in order, and then we would spend time on the weekends doing that as well. Yeah, and I, I think I found it really fun because, uh, you know, while working nine to five, you're sort of working for others. So mm-hmm. when you come back from office and then you work on a business, it's like your your baby project, you know. <laughs> you want to see it grow and you nurture it. And as I think as husband and wife, I think we really had fun starting this business. And especially when we see it grow, that's even more, you know, high five between us. <laughs> You know, one of the cons, Felix, is that obviously you don't have as much time to devote to the business, um, but in some ways your your energy is a little bit higher because you know when you, you do devote time to it, you're really concentrated in that energy. It, it also, by starting something on the side, it lowers your risk. So, you know, if you're the type of person where you kind of like your job and it's it's good and it's paying the bills, it allows you to step into, you know, another source of income without having to worry about where your bills are getting paid or your rent's getting paid. And in some ways that, that lowers the risk and, um, you know, just creates a different kind of opportunity. Yeah, I think lowering that that risk like you're talking about gives you a much more of a long-term outlook to where you're not just desperate for cash or sales right off the bat. You can have, you know, these charitable aspects to your business like you guys do or just make decisions for the long term that might not bring dollars into the door, dollars into the business, uh, you know, the next week or next month or so. Um, so if you were to start over, you know, start on the business uh, with having a day job, how would you approach it differently to to have a little bit more balance? Because like you're saying, you didn't have much balance before. Would you change anything about that or did you enjoy kind of the chaos of it all? I, I think in some ways we kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> when you're when you're starting out, everything is fresh and you, you know, one piece of momentum leads to the next. And so we were thriving on that a little bit earlier on. Um, but, you know, after a couple of months or, a couple, you know, a year down the road, we realized that we, we did need to, to devote specific times when we were talking about the business because what was happening was it was kind of work and life was kind of bleeding together a little bit too much. And so we began to set out, um, you know, hours during the day or the evening or the weekends where we would devote specific time to building the business. Mm-hmm. And I think that that structure helped a little bit. It felt a little less chaotic then. Mm. Yeah, and this this husband and wife uh, team, this this business that you guys started together, I think a lot of people want to aspire to this to have a, a partner uh, that is their husband or wife working with them. Did you? Because neither of you had experience starting business in the past, never did have experience starting entrepreneurial projects in the past, and this was your first attempt together. Looking back on it, how do you know if you would make a good team together or not? You know, for anyone else out there that's thinking about doing the same thing, are there ways to determine if because you know some teams aren't going to work well together, right? Even if you guys love each other and everything, just doesn't doesn't mesh well. How do you guys uh, recognize if uh, you guys would be a good team or not back then? Right, um, I think Dave and I we both are a little bit different personalities. 
Um, and I think it's knowing what each other's strengths and weaknesses are, right? So when we started, we didn't know. We didn't know whether we would be a good business partner or not. It was sort of an experiment. But after we started, we did realize what each of us can bring into the business. Like, for example, Dave is um, Dave has a public relation background, right? So he's really good in, you know, communication and reaching out to the media, uh, you know, content writing. So I know that's Dave's skill. So I let him be. I let him do those things. Uh, whereas I think my skill is more verbal communication. So when it comes to speaking to the media, when it comes to, you know, doing a bit of YouTube video, and that's where I come in. I go to different networking events. And uh, so it's more, more of a public face. And Dave loves to do a background work. Um, so if I write, it, it might not be that pretty. But I know if Dave would write, you know, content in our business, mm -hmm. I know that'll be fantastic. So it's sort of knowing, again, what each of each other can, you know, bring in what each other's strength is, again, weaknesses are, and realizing that and using that uh, strength to uh, build business on. Yeah, this is me. I've heard this, this um, I guess, your your advice uh, in the past as well. And the question that comes to mind is, does this mean that your strengths, yours and, and Dave's strengths, or, you know, both your strengths combined, do they need to cover all the bases? Or, like, you know, how much in a good partnership, doesn't matter if your husband or wife or not, but in your experience, how much of a partnership does everyone's strength need to cover, I guess? Are there, is, a, is it okay if there are weaknesses in areas for both of you? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's always going to be gaps in knowledge. There's going to be gaps in skill set. And so the best you can do is bring your, you know, your abilities to the table and then to outsource um, the sort of areas where you need more improvement. And so as, as Praj mentioned, um, you know, background in communications and marketing, I, I can help build the website, but my technical knowledge only goes so far. And so where we need additional help, then, then we outsource that. Same thing on the design front. Um, and, you know, for, for, for Gina, it's, you know, she's got great in building relationships. And so she's, she's helped solidify that with our suppliers and is, is really detailed on the importing process. Um, and then, you know, as we need additional help, we just, we just hire and outsource it. So I don't think that's a barrier to entry. I think you mm -hmm. can, um, you know, you, you bring as much as you can to the table and then you find out where your weaknesses are through, uh, through process and mm -hmm. sometimes a few fights along the way. Um, and then you you fill those gaps. Yeah, you know what, what do you what tips do you have on laying the groundwork early on to make sure that it is a successful partnership? I think you guys we already touched on the whole recognizing identifying strengths and weaknesses. I think that's very important to have that candid, very honest discussion with each other. But have, did you guys do anything else, or if you look back, did you wish you did anything else to make sure that the groundwork was the foundation was solid for a partnership? Yeah, I think. It all comes back to communication, and this is not only uh, helpful in business, it's helpful in relationships, too. And so one of the advantages for us, because we spent nine months apart, um, you know, Praj in Nepal and me in Canada, as we were thinking about this business, we were actually communicating every single day uh, by Skype, and we were talking things through. And when you don't have that sort of face-to-face -face interaction, as we did for those nine months, it really built the ability for us to talk to one another, to listen to one another. Um, you know, sometimes we're, we're so focused on trying to get our point across that we forget to listen to the, to the other's point of view. And so the communication, both, um, you know, what you're trying to say and, you know, listening to the other person, I think is, is kind of core to that. Um, and, you know, that's been a, a process for us all the way along. We don't, we don't always get it right and we don't <laughs> always 
you know, we often have differing point differing points of view, and we can both be kind of stubborn sometimes. <laughs> Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it really does come down to communication as the foundation for a solid partnership. Mm. And sometimes communication means having these hard discussions that are not going to be fun that might result in, you know, tension or, or heated discussions. Are there topics that you think more partners, more business partners, or maybe your husband and wife teams should be, should be having, should be discussing, should be discussing? I think one of the areas that's, that's really contentious for a lot of people is around money and finances. Mm. And so when you're first getting started, especially if you don't have any outside investors and you're putting your own money into the business, it's important to have that discussion up front mm-hmm. around how much you're willing to invest, um, both in terms of product, but also in terms of advertising and marketing. How much risk are you willing to take on? Um, and what's the vision for the company? You know, what's the lifestyle that you want to build mm-hmm. uh, around it? What do you want the company to allow you to be able to do? So some of the things that were important for us were certainly that we wanted to build in a charitable aspect to the business. Um, We wanted to be able to travel back and forth to Mm -hmm. Nepal and meet with suppliers on a regular basis. Um, And we wanted to have a steady source of side income that that we could rely upon. Mm. And given that you are creating a charitable business, uh, how do you think that you approach uh, building a business, marketing a business, growing a business differently than uh, a business that you would start that didn't have a charitable aspect to it? Well, I think I think it was no question for us because of our backgrounds in the nonprofit and philanthropic and charitable sectors, um, and and Praj's sort of you know experience in international development. We knew that we wanted to build that in right from the start, mm-hmm. and so the way that we've done it is just to allocate a portion of of every sale uh, into a small kind of separate pool, and then we could direct that towards charitable causes that we were really interested in. So for us, the, it was kind of a no brainer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people will use it as a marketing tactic, I think. But for us, because we just had that background, it, it was important for us to contribute in some way. Mm. And given your experience, your background in, in charitable work and because your business it has this charitable aspect to it, are there any legal considerations that you know, people that don't have your experience need to keep in mind if they are going down this path? I mean, it's not in this. It's it's you know because it's the business allocating money um, for charitable purposes. You don't have to worry about tax receipts or any kind of regulatory systems in, in that way. I think you know as long as you're transparent in the way that you're communicating that to customers that there is a charitable arm uh, to the business and that a, a portion of all sales are going towards that. Um, I think people are understanding. Mm. Tell us about your charity and that you work with, and how did you choose the ones that you do work with. Yeah. Um, so before we started a business, I was working in, well, before I even went to Netherlands, I was working in a nonprofit there for three years and I was working for, you know, children's education there. Um, and so working in a nonprofit there for three years. So that sort of was always, you know, stuck to my mind where I would go to villages and see how the projects has impact. Right. So I think the children's education was just the core of what we wanted to do in the business. So that that sort of came naturally to us. And when we went back to Nepal, then again, um, you know, we connected with different nonprofits and what they are doing. And finally, we chose the one that we really saw the potential in that, you know, that nonprofit will grow um, over a few years. And we saw the really great work that they were doing in different villages. So we, that's how, uh, you know, pick, we picked the nonprofit and as well as investing in, in children's education was something we really believed in. 
Very cool. So when you find these uh, these charities, how do you even approach them, or the one that you found? How do you even approach them when you want to uh, work with them in in essentially donating these uh, uh, proceeds or a portion of the proceeds of your sales to them? Yeah. So we sign a memorandum of understanding with them um, and the project that we want to donate the money in and where that money would go to. So yeah. So we it was more of a signing a MOU with the with the nonprofit. Okay, makes sense. Now, when you do identify a charity to work with, do you? Is there any other kind of involvement? Like you're saying, do you need to, you know, I guess make sure that the, the money is going into to the right places? I think that's always a concern for a lot of people these days with uh, donating donations and working with charities. Is are they using the money in the right way? Is there any ways to? I, I mean, you can't just micromanage everything they do or or be too intrusive. But are there ways to guarantee that that your your dollars are going to to the right places? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, for me, again, it comes to building relationship. <laughs> I think I am big on that. So mm-hmm. we talk to the um, director of the nonprofit that we donate to. I, I talk to him on Skype often. And when we go back to Nepal, when we meet our suppliers, um, then we go and meet with the nonprofit. We go to their offices and we, you know, check out all the photos and they give us a financial report as well where the money is going. And they are the grassroots NGO, right? So they are based locally in Nepal. Um, so that means that they have a you know pretty good connection in the country and they know the local people and local culture and local customs. So I think that was another important thing for me was something to donate locally because, you know, I'm from Nepal as well. So um, so that's how we you know get to know that the money is going to the right place. Um, but the, I think the biggest uh, sort of uh, our attention went to charity when the you know earthquake uh, hit Nepal in the year 2015 in April. And uh, Dave and I, we both were in Canada during that time. And it was, I think, three o'clock at night that I got a phone call from my cousin that there was a big earthquake, 7.9. I tried calling home. Nobody picked up the phone. I was in tears that I didn't know what to do. I saw all the pictures and video in the media. It looked like just, you know, alien spaceship came and it just looked, it looked like the destruction uh, everywhere. And we felt really bad and realized that after I spoke with my family, they were okay, but we saw the destruction out there. And while we were here, we were like, oh my God, we need, you know, we need to do something. We can't just, just, you know, be quiet. So we um, got together with our, you know, friends and family here in Canada as well. And we set up a fundraising um, site to donate to the, you know, earthquake uh, rehabilitation in Nepal. And we raised around, uh, I think, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000. And we donated to the, again, the local charities. So till now we get the pictures and we get the, financial report as well as we get all the reports of how that uh, money is being used. That's amazing. I think it also helps a lot when you have such a all these people that depend on the dollars that you're that you're donating to them. It helps you stay motivated to to grow the business, to focus on on staying and, and competing in the marketplace because you know that every dollar that every sale you generate can help someone else out that you know that's not even that is, might not even know about the products that you're you're selling that might not even know about your business. I think that. And gives that extra kind of drive for a lot of people. Um, so I want to talk about that that aspect. Actually, you know, growing the business and and the marketing channels that you guys use. So I think one of the things you listed in the pre-interview questions was about media outreach as one of the key aspects.
aspects of growing the business, getting more exposure for it. And uh, well, I guess tell, tell us about your strategy. Like, what is the approach to to getting the media to cover uh, your, your your story, your product, your your brand? Well, there's kind of two ways to go about it. You can either do what we did in the, the beginning, which was kind of a lot of cold calling. It was understanding that you have a story to pitch and that the story is bigger than the products uh, of the business. And so the more you can think about the why of, of your story, I think that resonates better with media. In some ways, it's best just to start local. You know, if you have a newspaper or a um, you know, tele- local television station, contact them. You'd be surprised how willing they are to feature local businesses. And that's, that's really an, an easy way. And so one of the first hits that we had was um, a major newspaper in, in the city here that did a full page spread in their kind of life and fashion uh, section of the newspaper. And, you know, it, it really took off. I think we were really surprised at, at how much that drove traffic and interest for us. You know, a lot of focus right now on social media and, and you know, Google campaigns and AdWords. Um, but really, those are kind of short, quick hits in some ways. And when you have a larger story to tell that encompasses both the products, uh, your travel, your the founding story, the charitable aspect, Sometimes you need a little bit more real estate and a little bit more time. And so our, our feeling is that print media has been really, really, in particular, quite supportive of that. Um, doing podcasts like this is, is also beneficial because you get to tell your story in a much longer format. I see. So you, your approach to to media outreach is is it different when it comes to print media versus digital? Like you know a an on like a website or a blog that that might want to cover you guys. Is the approach different and the results different too that you found by working on through those two mediums? I think you have to understand the media outlet that you're pitching. You have to know their audience. You have to know the types of stories that they're interested in telling uh, their customers or their base and to tailor your pitch. So it doesn't help to just create one story and fire it off to, you know, a hundred media outlets. It, it really does require a, a time, sometimes time consuming one-on-one outreach. And so you need to know who it is that you need to get in touch with. So it, um, you know, a, a newspaper or a television station, there's usually a, an editor or a producer uh, that really puts the whole show together and they're, they're really the key contact for you. So if you can identify who those people are, uh, really get clear on the story that you want to pitch and the time that you have to do it, I think that really helps. Mm-hmm. And how do you learn more about these media outlets so that you can cater the pitch? Like, What have you done to successfully do that and you know, do that at scale? Well, I think that's, that's the next step. So you can start local and you can understand the media outlets that are close by but then eventually you might get to a point where you don't have the relationships or, or knowledge of other markets. And so for us, um, you know, not having an extensive background in, in fashion and the accessories world, our knowledge of those media outlets only went so far. Uh, and so more recently, we've uh, brought on a publicist who can help uh, build some of those relationships, who has those contacts in the industry where, where we want to be and can help broker and open the doors to some of those um, media opportunities. Mm, okay, so you brought on a, a publicist so because they have essentially those those relationships, those, that network that you can tap into. Now, when you bring on a publicist, like, how do you work with them? How do you make sure that they have what they need uh, to, to do their job well on your behalf? 
Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is first selecting the right one, right? Are they in the are they in the industry? Do they have the relationships? Have they have they been part of um, pitching stories in the past? And then the kinds of things that you need to provide them are certainly your your backstory, uh, any details around the products, and the kind of thing that differentiates you from other products. Um, pulling together a press kit uh, is one example of something that might be really really helpful. Uh, that press kit usually includes photos and uh, a bit of the story, backstory, and um, and then you know having all the kind of social media pieces to support all of that is is useful as well. Mm-hmm. And are there deliverables if for anyone out there that's thinking about going down this route of also hiring a publicist? Are there deliverables or uh, maybe even terms that you expect from a publicist so that they, I guess, hit the milestones that you want them to hit? Like, is there like a set number of media appearances that you expect from them? Like, what are some of the key things to pay attention to when, I guess, striking a deal with a publicist? Yeah, I think um, one, how we dealt with our publicists that we said, this is our price point and, you know, what you could do in that price point. Then she sort of told us, okay, with that price point, then, you know, I can have you in this, for example, a print media here or the TV show here or the online magazines here. And if, if that works with you and then, you know, you're, you're pretty good with what she has or what the publicist has uh, said will deliver if that's okay with you. And then you would, you would go for that. Again, it comes to the price point as well, what the publicist would charge to have you in different, uh, different segments of newspaper or our magazines. Some of it's really organic too, Felix, Mm. you know, you you put a story out there or the publicist will pitch a story to a media outlet and you don't know what's going to stick for them. And so in some ways it's a bit of a numbers game, uh, but it's also a relationship game as well. Right. And for us, you know, accessing, you know, the Rolodex of a publicist, for example, has helped um, increase the scope and reach of our media coverage. Mm. And in terms of organizing all of this, is there a schedule that, especially early on when you just work with the publicist for the first time, is there a schedule that you want, that you need to, or that you want to adhere to, or do you just get any and all exposure as soon as you can? Um, yeah, again, it's kind of throwing things up and, and see what sticks. And certainly you want to know that the time of year that uh, makes the most sense for you. So for us, you know, the holidays are, are a big one. And so starting that process, um, you know, at, at, in the lead up to the holidays gives us enough time to uh, both seed that media coverage and then see it come to realization, um, especially with things like magazines. You know, the more lead time you can provide, mm-hmm. the better. Um, and then there's all kinds of other things that go along with it. So you know, sometimes you might be asked to provide product um, to a, to a media outlet or a blogger in order to um, you know do product reviews, um, or you might be asked for uh, some kinds of compensation as well. Mm, so the product samples, um, which is I think another uh, marketing strategy that you listed in the pre-interview questions, um, do you are these the product samples being sent to the media outlets or are they? Uh, being sent to influencers, like who are you uh, targeting? I guess with these uh, product samples, we focused earlier on on trying to get coverage in major media outlets. Um, we focus less right now on the kind of bloggers and influencers, although we know that they're they're heavily important in the fashion fashion mm-hmm. world. But when you're starting out, it's important to build a bit of credibility, and so the more media outlets that can feature your your products, uh, that helps to establish a sense of trust and and social proof with your audience. 
Makes sense. So the product samples are usually a, a request or maybe sometimes a requirement from the, the media outlets themselves. You're not reaching out to like reviewers that are not in these print magazine or print media or bigger publications. Uh, so maybe like a, a YouTuber or an Instagram influencer. Are you reaching out to those people too with product samples? We haven't yet. Um, that's probably down the road. One of the challenges for us is that uh, the cashmere product is quite expensive, and mm-hmm. so we're not in the position where we can, you, you know, send out you know hundreds of, of different samples when we give something away. Um, you know, we're we're pretty selective in in who we give that to and and the type of product that we provide. Yeah, I was going to say these uh, these products would get uh, product uh, samples would get very expensive very quickly if you were to send it out to anybody and everybody. Um, so speaking of you know these product samples, you're selling a product, especially in the apparel space. You're selling a product that people want to touch, what they want to feel, they want to wear before they buy it. Typically, right? Because they walk into the store. When someone walks into a retail store, they're not going to just buy a piece of a piece of fabric or um, clothing without trying it on, without picking it up at first. Do you encounter this issue because you're selling predominantly online? And what are some ways that you found to overcome this kind of gap in the ability for people to touch the fabric? Right. Itself? No, that that's a great question. Again, I think because you're an online store, you um, really need to hire a good photographer. Right, because people can't come and touch your products. Our your photographer, um, your sorry, your your photo actually needs to speak to the customers. So if your photo is really great, that shows the quality of your product. I think that's really essential, especially if you're selling a high-end product. And another one that I think customers would look for is the product validity, right? How would they validate that the product that we have actually is a good quality? And I think that's where the customer reviews come in. Mm -hmm. So if you have in your website, if the customers are really giving you, you know, five-star reviews and writing great things about you, then the other potential customers would read that and actually think that, okay, I think they actually have a, a great product. So I think those are the two things that is really essential if the people can't come and touch your product. Great photography and then, uh, you know, social validation like customer reviews. The other thing about accessories, Felix, is that they're kind of unique in that they are sometimes one size fits all, that they're not like a a sweater or a dress where you have to try it on and and see that it fits. Uh, You know, a scarf is is pretty easy and fits Mm. most people. Same with the shawls and the hats. And so that was something we were considering early on is, um, how do we how do we create a line of products that makes it easy for customers to buy? Right, that that makes a lot of sense. That it doesn't have to be tried on, but they still might want to touch it. But then the photography is where that comes in. Um, so speaking of photography, did you is this done in house or did you hire a photographer to take these photos? Yeah, no, we hired a photographer. Again, you you know, going back to kind of the, the skills that you have and the skills that you don't have, photography is one of those that <laughs> was a bit of a gap for us. And so we needed somebody who was who was both professional and understood lighting and uh, could place the products in the right way and and then do the kind of post production work to get rid of any shadows and and really kind of highlight the the color of the cashmere because that's part of what makes the product stand out. We we selected the colors really really carefully and they really pop. Um, and we needed them to pop on screen. And how did you find this photographer? Do you need to find somebody that has experience uh, shooting your particular fabric? Like, what are you looking for when you're trying to identify a photographer, especially one that you need to bring in because you need to get over, help your customers get over this missing, uh, just this touch feel gap um, that is, you know, only uh, that that is because you're selling online. 
Yeah, again, we, you know, there's lots of sites out there where you can go and kind of pitch your idea and, and give people product samples and they can create it for you. But for us, it was really important to work with somebody that was that was local, had a uh, kind of foothold into the fashion industry. Um, for us, finding somebody that did a lot of weddings um, was was useful as well. That was kind of a, there was a crossover there between uh, shooting beauty for weddings and shooting beauty for luxury products as well. Um, so, you know, that was part of it. And then having somebody locally allowed us to, um, both give them the products they need and work with them one-on-one to help style those products in the right way. Mm. And also checking out their web pages and how they have photographed other products. So if we see that, oh, okay, you know, she has a really good understanding of the lightning and the concept to show the pictures, then that's, that's um, that's how we chose our photographer as well because she had a great uh, you know photos of other products and we thought she might be the right person. Makes sense. Cool. So now that the store's up and running and everything, uh, how do you guys spend your your days today? Uh, what do you do when you you know first uh, get started to work on, on this business on a, on a daily basis? There's so many different <laughs> things you can tackle. Yeah. I mean, some of the challenge is is really just focusing your energy. And so for us, because we, we have full-time jobs, um, we need to be a little selective in what we take on. Um, but really, you know, the core pieces are ensuring that the website functions extreme, extremely well, um, making sure that it has sort of a, the proper look and feel and design that will capture people's attention. Um, there's the ongoing work of, of building media relationships and, mm. and pitching your story. And then there's the things that you need to do to entice your customers. And so Part of that is is driving social media, um, building an e-newsletter base uh, that you can offer promotions. Um, and then, you know, in addition to all that, of course, there's the, the growth and future of the business. And so giving some more consideration to, you know, the next products that we that we might want to bring online as well. Very cool. So what, what tools and apps or services do you uh, both rely on to run the business, especially when it's done on the side alongside a day job? Well, I mean, that's that's the beauty of Shopify and, and the platform is that it can really assist with making the, the customer experience really seamless and really easy and then for you to manage it on the back end. Um, so some of the apps that we've used, um, we've integrated with MailChimp for our, our newsletters. Um, we've got a good app called Conversio that helps with the receiving process, um, knowing that that's all digital. Um, we ship here in Canada, so Canada Post is one of our, our key you know, shipping uh, suppliers. And so we've got an integration through the Shopify backend uh, to help give us a discount on that front as well. Um, and then some of the, um, the other apps that have been helpful are, are Shopify's product reviews. It really gives kind of social proof and validity to the products. Um, and then we've just started to think about how to integrate with um you know, other other types of you know, e-commerce uh, platforms as well. So Google Shopping being one of those. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like uh, expansion is the, the next big thing for you guys. Uh, when, you, when you do think about the business in a year from now, where do you want to see it, uh, it be? Where do you want to see the brand go? Where do you want to see the product being featured in the, in the next year? Well, I think we want to keep building the, the product line. Uh, that's first and foremost for us. So that means adding new shawls, new colors, uh, new weaves, um, there's a whole other market that we can get into in, in baby products yeah. and blankets right. um, for cashmere. And so that's a, a natural next step for us. So that's something we're exploring right now. And then, uh, you know, in terms of the rest of the business, certainly more media coverage. Um, mm. there's, <laughs> there's, you know, you can never have too many people pointing to your website. Mm-hmm. 
and driving traffic for you. Um, and so that's a key focus for us as well. Now that we've laid the foundation and the uh, kind of website and the, the systems are working really, really well, um, there's an ongoing piece around driving traffic to the site. And so I think the next step for us is to get our products in front of those influencers and, and bloggers and um, people who really drive sales on social media. Very cool. Thanks so much for your time, David Praj. So KoralaCashmere.com, again, is a website, C-O-R-A-L-A-C-A-S-H-M-E-R-E.com. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners go and check out if they want to follow along with the products that you're putting out? Uh, yeah, you can follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at KoralaCashmere. Awesome, simple enough. And we'll link all that in the show notes as well. Again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Felix. Take care. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.